in a traffic jam Staring at the faces in a rearview mirror Looking at the promise of the promised land One kid dreams of fame and fortune One kid helps pay the rent Woke Destroyer. Only in America. Randy Tobler. Dreaming in red, white, and blue. On News Talk STL. Good morning. Welcome to the Randy Tobler Show. Broadcasting with my remote studio from Destin as we're on jump day from a few days with the family. And uh, boy, what a week it was. We have a huge week with the affidavit, mostly redacted, but some interesting news there. Tim Jones is going to help us unpack that later on in the program in the 8 o'clock hour. Of course, we had uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell making waves, oh, making big waves. No, making a tsunami in the markets with the Dow down three and uh, a little more than 3%, 1,000 points uh, yesterday as he is going to take an aggressive stance in raising those interest rates. And so if you're going to doing any uh, large uh, purchases, a car, home, uh, you know, maybe borrowing to maybe a little home equity loan to do some repair, watch out, it's going to hurt. And that's going to slow the economy down. Will that push us into recession? The recession that Biden refuses to recognize we're in or heading in. (laughs) We'll we'll, uh, we'll, uh, be talking about that as well. Um, And lots in the news, of course, about the student loan debt repayment issue. Uh, Inez Stepman will join us uh, here in just a few minutes in the 625 uh, slot. Uh, And Dr. Fauci retiring at the end of the year. Uh, uh, Producer Leah, can you get out the violin music that, um, (laughs) you know, Dr. Fauci's retiring? And I know everyone's sad to see that. But Mr. Science, Mr. Science, people go into medical school just because I'm the science. I'm the science. Um, we'll, uh, we'll have Rick Mehta, who's a former FDA official. I want to talk with him about, well, not only Dr. Fauci and how to write um, public health officials' visage within these United States, but also the FDA, the CDC, their images have been tarnished tremendously. We'll see what he thinks about Rochelle Walensky, the head of the CDC's, I think, very modest and tepid efforts to, uh, to turn that ship around and uh, to put some faith back into public health, because there's no doubt in the past these organizations had had great, um, they carried, carried great weight and, and with good, you know, with good justification. But um, among the medical practitioners I know, I know certainly I had a lot of confusion trying to find their various connecting the dots. It was very, very difficult. And uh, not only that, but just the blatant outright misrepresentations of science uh, as the science was advancing. And they're late on the pickup to recognize changes in our understanding of the virus, its treatment, and, of course, vaccine efficacy, which changed as we saw the, saw the virus drift. So we'll talk with Rick Mehta about that. Ross Malone, a, um, a Missouri historian you may not have heard of, but is a prolific writer. And uh, he's written several books. So Missouri's Forgotten Heroes is one. Uh, and um, Valor, he's written a great book, uh, the, the latest book on, on Medal of Honor uh, recipients, all from Missouri. So we'll touch base with Ross at 725. And of course, our regular hit with Virginia Pruda at 745. And Todd Benzman, uh, 
with uh, the Center for Immigration Studies, uh, erstwhile reporter on border matters. Uh, he's got some interesting things about how they're using cell phones to really manipulate the system. Um, and we're going to get an update. I want to know about some of that travel, those buses, and whether or not old uh, Abbott is putting people on the buses and shackling them and putting their leg irons and forcing them on those buses up to D.C. and Washington, D.C. Uh, and uh, New York City, or if, in fact, that is a bit of a uh, foil. So a big, uh, big show. And, of course, Tim Jones to wrap it up as we as we talk about um, the affidavit. What does it say? What doesn't it say? And um, where is this thing going? The head of the, the Drudge Report today, uh, the top of the fold, top of the headline, Drudge Report says, indictment watch. Oh, my gosh, indictment watch. And they've got a they've got a picture of, of Trump in orange, you know, the orange uh, jail suit. Pretty funny. So we'll uh, we'll see where uh, where uh, Mr. Tim thinks about that. Of course, from afternoons here on News Talk STL. So Leah's over there producing, making sure everything works well. I think we ought to jump right into it and play some. Uh, what I think is, despite all of the things we've talked about, all of the things we've talked about, Mark Zuckerberg blew the lid open on Joe Rogan's podcast the other day, that admitting that in fact, <laughs> that government weaponized. Uh, the largest uh, uh, social media platform, uh, well, we know they did that with Twitter, ahead of the 2020 election. Take a listen to this. There was a lot of attention on Twitter during the election because of the Hunter Biden laptop story, the New yeah, York Post. Yeah, we had that too. Yeah, so you guys censored that as well? So we took a different path than Twitter. Um, I mean, basically, the background here is the FBI, I think, basically came to us, uh, some, some folks on our team, and was like, hey... Um, just so you know, like you should be on high alert. There was the, we we thought that there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election. We have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump of of um, uh, that's similar to that. So just be vigilant. So our protocol is different from Twitter's. What Twitter did is they said you can't share this at all. Um, we didn't do that. What, what we do is we have. Um, if something is reported to us as potentially um, misinformation, important misinformation, we we also have this third-party fact-checking program because we don't want to be deciding what's true and false. Well, you notice that he said misinformation, potential misinformation. So he, well, you know, come to think of it, Leah, Dr. Fauci is Mr. Science. He is science. And it mm -hmm. looks like Mark Zuckerberg is the... Uh, the, the judge of what is information and what is misinformation. Hmm. Boy, doesn't he give himself a lofty position in the in the communication world? Isn't it nice that we have someone? I'm glad I have Mark Zuckerberg to rely on to determine. Huh. He, he does. He just said it. He believes that the, that he's the, the guy to determine what's misinformation. Fascinating, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, I think, too, that uh, he goes on to say that, well, all they did was uh, limit the reach of, uh, you know, they turned on the volume on the reach of that of that uh, reporting, of course, which directly did affect how many people heard that story. Uh, but but more than that, he said, well, but we allowed him to share it. But it was significant, he went on to say. That is the biggest story. Who would have ever thought that in these United States, this would be essentially the equivalent of, you know, when there were only a few radio stations, uh, you know, uh, the, all the radio stations or when there was when there was only you know one newspaper uh in this country was small having that organ being the one that would suppress information just a few days ahead of an election that could affect the election profoundly profoundly 
And um, he, he just was very matter of fact about it. He wasn't splapped at all. He just, well, that's the way it is. The FBI said, watch out, you know, don't be spreading this stuff. And they didn't, or at least they limited the spread. That tells you just how deep the deep state is, the highest levels of the FBI. I'm not talking about FBI field agents here. At least I'd, I'd, I'd like to think that, and all that we've heard so far is that it's the highest levels of the FBI that were um, in collusion and in cahoots with the, um, you know, with Facebook, the largest social media platform, to uh, to restrict what should be open information. You can believe it, you cannot believe it. Uh, it turns out that it was misinformation to call it misinformation, and uh, that we should never forgive them for because you know there's been polls that have come out and said that in swing states um up to 16 percent of people said that they wouldn't have voted for joe biden had that information been out there because it was it was damning i mean you know 10 percent for the big guy <laughs> uh, it's there was some really very very damning uh um, information on that and and just the fact that it existed the fact that the fact that he was involved in influence peddling uh, implies that influence was there to be peddled, and uh, it's it's sad. It's sad. So uh, where that's going to go, whether it's going to lead to any further investigation, certainly not under the Democratic regime, but perhaps if the House, and that's a big if at these points. At this point, I'm I am not certain that this big tsunami, this big wave, this big overwhelming, uh, you know, the equivalent of the 2010 Tea Party wave is going to happen uh, this fall, based on what you're beginning to see. I mean, you're seeing that. Um, people are going to get some free loans. Oh, did I mention student loan forgiveness might be out there? Yes, people might be getting that. Um, a lot of people are worked up over the Dobbs decision and abortion uh, rights. And, um, you know, while it may galvanize certainly those of us who are on the conservative side of the fence, what's it going to do? Is it going to even galvanize further and activate maybe complacent voters that, that weren't all that engaged in this election process? perhaps a little resigned to the fact there would be a wave, at least in the in the House. Um, and then you have the element of uh, flawed candidates, particularly in the Senate, with the likes of, uh, of Herschel Walker and, and Dr. Oz. I mean, clearly not uh, not the strongest candidates because of their lack of, of any kind of history to, 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 to base things on, except for their stardom. Uh, I, I don't think Dr. Oz, by the way, would be a bad uh, legislator. He's a sharp guy. I don't always agree with all of his opinions. But he's a good communicator. I think he could be effective, just like Donald Trump, because of communication skills, um, very, very effective in some quarters. And then in other quarters, sort of overplayed a good hand and lost some ground there. Um, concerning the student loan debt, if you have a call, you want to weigh in on 314-912-1019. Uh, we have just a couple minutes left in this segment um, here on 1019-941 News Talk STL. Hey, uh, Leah, let's play. Uh, from uh, let's play 25 from from uh, sheet 25 uh, the uh, uh, the uh, education I'm sorry number seven number seven this is Susan Rice this is from 25 uh, number seven Susan Rice top advisor trying to pull the wool over Americans eyes and in this case this reporter um, saying that well while the reports may be up to 500 billion dollars 500 billion dollars half a trillion. We don't really know how much this program will cost. Listen to this canard. How much will this cost? How much will Americans have to pay on this price tag overall? Well, that, de that remains to be determined, and it will be a function of what percentage of eligible borrowers actually take up this opportunity. $300 billion? It, they have to, we'll see what, when they take up the opportunity. We'll be able to give you 
uh, a much better sense but, but are of those that. Numbers ballpark I, at this point? I think it depends on the numbers. Like it, you know, unfortunately, and I, we're here to encourage as many people to take it up as possible. If if 43 million borrowers uh, take it up, uh, that'll be different than if 50 percent of those 43 million take it up. Hey, so Leah, if you have a chance to, I don't know if you've uh, accumulated some some student loan debt. Uh, have you done Have you done that? Uh yeah. To pay for college? Yep. Yeah, a little bit. So uh, Susan Rice just said that you know 43 million people will be eligible for some forgiveness, but only if they take it up. And so we really can't tell you how. Do you plan on not taking it up? I mean, can you imagine any condition under which you wouldn't take advantage of this plan? <laughs> yeah, no. No. And, and you see, so there's the point. They know exactly how many people, every last one of them who can take advantage of this will. They'll make it incredibly easy and incredibly costly for the American taxpayer. And while it's, uh, you know, I mean, there are, I guess, certain hardship cases, particularly in those places where people were duped and there was fraud going on, the, the owners of those companies, the principals of those companies ought to be prosecuted, I think, vigorously. I think there's also some opportunities, too, uh, to to deal with it in other ways, other than just, you know, making people who never went to college or those who paid off their debt now, you know, take up the debt burden for those who haven't. I'm sorry, Leah, but you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that's the problem. The problem is that you, you 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 pick and choose winners and losers. You buy some votes, but you may lose some votes with, this, with a stance like this. Well, we're going to help unpack that with Inez Stepman from Independent Women's Forum when we come back here on the Randy Tolbert Show. I thank you for listening. It means a lot that you're here. On 1019-941 News Talk STL, I'm Randy. There's Leah. We'll be right back. Put on my blue suede shoes and I boarded the plane. Touchdown in the land of the Delta Blue. Ongoing fury in some camps and uh, happiness in others on the student loan forgiveness. Well, trying to help us figure this out is Inez Stepman, who is a senior policy analyst at Independent Women's Forum. How are you doing, Inez? I'm really, I'm hearing things all over the, the water cooler talk and the kitchen table talk. It's a popular topic, this student loan forgiveness thing, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly caused uh, quite a bit of fur. Um, and, and I think that's, that's because it obviously favors a particular class of people. Um, first and foremost, the universities are the, the beneficiary of, of their product being forgiven on the back end, which allows them to continue to raise tuition as they have uh, by more than 300% in the last couple decades. Um, and, and second of all, uh, essentially managerial elites, right? Um, people who have, who have administrative jobs, bureaucratic jobs, HR department type jobs. Now, of course, it's not exclusive to these people, but if you look at the numbers, you break down who actually benefits from loan forgiveness. Um, it, it's those classes of people, and it's done on the backs of people who decided not to go to college at all and take on that debt, or people who did and paid off that debt sometimes at pers you know, per great personal sacrifice over the last um, you know, number of years. So that, that's why I think there's emotions running high. There's a lot of people uh, who stand to benefit directly from this and a lot of people who are getting screwed by it, frankly. It's really creating some um, ideological 
cognitive dissonance among conservatives who would benefit from this. <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> I know several and their sons and daughters who were raised in the conservative tradition and small limited government and accountability and <laughs> well, I don't know. My kids sure struggling. I that 10,000 should sure help them out a lot, you know. <laughs> and it's it's just it's this is the problem with these kind of programs, isn't it? It's it's sort of it's it's part of this whole the divisive nature of redistributionist policies. And there, there, there are many. This isn't the only one. It's turning us all into socialists little by little, isn't it? Um, well, I don't know if it's turning us into socialists, but it certainly is a kind of divide and conquer politics, right? Uh, the, one of the things that becomes clearer and clearer as you analyze uh, who's actually um, receiving this benefit, you realize it's, it's, it's Joe Biden's constituency, right? It is uh, mm -hmm. college educated, obviously, um, you know, upper middle class people, obviously the, the very wealthy, the 1%, they paid cash, they don't care. Uh, but, but the primary beneficiaries is that top 25 to 30% of the income spectrum. Um, and, and, those are folks largely that are, are very important in the Biden coalition. So you can really see this as a crass exercise of rewarding, you know, political friends and, and people yeah. who voted for Biden. And that, that's that's underscored, I think, um, especially by the fact that a National Review has a, a great piece out um, a couple of days ago showing that about half of the Biden White House staffers are potentially eligible for this program. So in many cases, <laughs> he may be actually quite literally paying off his employees, right? Um, oh, my goodness. So, in Washington, D.C., it has the highest percentage of people who will benefit from this, this program in the country, right? So it is, it is focused on a class of people who, by many accounts, have already done quite well in this general uh, economic game. Um, and, and frankly, it's, it's you know, this, those benefits are being paid off by people who are suffering in, in our current economic state. So it, it really is sort of a reverse Robin Hood policy. It is taking from people um, who, who perhaps chose not to go to college or, or couldn't go to college because of the cost um, and giving it to people who did go to college, do have a degree, in many cases have enormous earnings potential, even if right now um, they're making a, a middle-class salary, let's say seventy dollars to $100,000 a year, they have enormous income potential down the line. So here I'm thinking about people like, for example, uh, Harvard Law professor Lawrence Tribe tweeted out how much this helps his students, right? Well, a lot of his Harvard Law students, when they graduate, they go and they clerk and they make sixty or $70,000 a year for a couple years. They qualify for this forgiveness, even though they're going to go into big law and make, you know, starting salary of almost $200,000 out of the gate, right? So um, some of this is, is a lot of sort of economic or sort of number manipulation to pretend that this is really going to uh, folks who are, are in dire financial straits. And for the most part, that's not the case. I just, I just really struggle with the whole... Um the whole morality of it and and that these these programs when they are means tested uh, you know okay so 125 grand which is a pretty good chunk of change right i mean people can be making a decent living and get this uh, forgiven well, what about the guy or gal that makes 124999 <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's so arbitrary when they come up with these programs. Uh, and it just, it's just troubling that way. And I, I just can't, I, I don't know why I can't get over it. I just, it just, why, why, why not 120? Why not 150? Why not 110? Why do they play? They, these are arbitrary numbers. And it's just, that's the problem with arbitrary programs. Like you say, it's divide and conquer. What's your reaction to, I think, what has been in the last 24 hours, one of the most common um, criticisms of those who are in favor of the loan forgiveness 
and, and, and their critique of those who are against it, saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Did you take the PPP program? Did you, you know, Mr. Plumber, who says you're, you didn't go to, to college and you are working for a plumber, or maybe you own a small plumbing operation, and you're griping that you're going to pay for someone else's college education. Did you take that PPP? So there's a bit of whataboutism going. Oh, your reaction to that? Yeah, I, I, I frankly think that's an argument that uh, sounds smart to dumb people. <laughs> I, 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 just, I think it's very, very, it's a very bad analogy, right? Um, this, this PPP program was sold to us on the basis that it was a one-time emergency. The government shut down businesses, and they wanted to retain people's jobs, right? Because obviously when you shut down businesses, they have to lay off their employees. It, it wasn't even really a loan program so much as the loan thing was a mechanism to make sure that people didn't then apply that, that PPP money um, to the bottom line or something else and also get rid of their employees. So it was, it was basically a conditional grant. Um, it was a loan, and then the loan would be forgiven if you retained your employees. Right. Um, and if you had revenue loss, you had to show revenue right. loss. Oh, that's right. Right. Okay. So so like whatever one thinks about PPP, it was it was literally sold to us as we are in this one time, you know, once in a hundred years pandemic. The government is literally shutting down everything by force. <laughs> um, and and the, the idea that it's thrown back in, in business owners to states now because we're talking about the, the you know, the. I guess the consequences of a system that has been carefully built over the course of the last 50 years. This is not going to be a one-time thing. In four years, the debt burden will be exactly where it is today. This is literally a Band-Aid on the back end, and it doesn't do anything to touch the actual problem, which is the skyrocketing cost of college because of subsidized student loans that originate with the government. I want everyone to understand one thing about this because I, I often get pushed back on this point. Um, from folks, they say, "Well, the banks can eat the can eat the cost, right?" There are no banks in this case. Ninety three percent of the loans are are held directly by the U.S. government. So you are the bank in this case. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it's not some you know sort of Wall Street bank that's going to eat this. It's directly the U.S. taxpayer. I I couldn't agree with you more. We're talking with Inez Stepman at Inez Felcher on Twitter. She's with Independent Women's Forum, one of my favorite groups in all the world. So um, I'm on uh, vacation in Destin, uh, broadcasting remote this week, and um, it's been interesting. My adult children, uh, you know, talking about this a lot, and they're they're saying like, look, we can, okay, we can talk about this particular deal, but what we need, Dad, is reform in the loan program from the beginning. And I'm thinking, you know, if we are going to if we are going to do this Band-Aid on the backside, as you say, I mean, I think along with it, that doesn't there need to be some reform in the requirements for the loans, uh, the, uh, to whom they're going to be given? Should there be some capital? Should there be some community service payback? Uh, have you thought about that any? What, what can we do to try to avoid this hazard in the future? Well, the, the first and most important thing is we have to stop this, break this cycle, right, of ever escalating loans and ever skyrocketing college tuition. Right. And there, there, there are a number of proposals from the left to the right to try to do that. Right. Um, my preferred way would be to stop or at least, at least cap um, student loan availability uh, from the government, because the fundamental problem here is there's nobody sitting around. It's exactly that there are no banks. Right. There's no guy behind a desk sitting and thinking, does it make sense to give an unsecured one hundred and twenty thousand dollar loan 
to a 17-year-old who wants to go to a hundred, uh, you know, a thousandth ranked university to study some yeah. like esoteric field. There's there's right. no calculation like that. There's no evaluation of the value of a degree that's happening or the likelihood that these loans are, are going to be able to be paid back happening. So fundamentally, there needs to be some kind of limitations put on this market because right now it's an endless cycle of the government offering more loan money and college tuition raising, uh, you know, raising their prices based on the availability mm-hmm. of that quote unquote free loan money, right? Um, and that that hurts everybody. It, uh, the student loan uh, debt crisis is a real thing, and it really has, a, in many ways, put a financial damper on now two generations. Uh, but the only way to stop that is to stop that cycle. So that's that's number one. These band aids don't do anything about it. In fact, they make it worse because now people will go to college and, and take out even more loans if they want because they'll know this isn't going to be a one time thing. There will be forgiveness on the back end, and colleges will know that too and further raise the prices. So this actually makes it worse. Um, but the second thing is. Once we do something about this cycle or in in concurrence with doing something about that cycle, I I think, frankly, um, if there's going to be debt relief uh, for especially for actually, you know, needy, needy Americans uh, who are really struggling to pay off their loans, I think it should come from universities. I don't think it should come from from American taxpayers. I don't think it should come from mechanics to pay off the debt of Harvard lawyers. I think it should come from Harvard. Um, the universities have about $700 billion on the books, probably more off the books, um, in, in endowment um, in endowment funds. You know, if, if we are going to do this, then I think it's only fair that that relief, that debt relief, should come out of the university coffers because those are coffers that they built on this gravy train that they have been benefiting from enormously for the last 30 years. And I think it's only fair to ask them to chip in to, to solve the problem now that they have had a huge hand in creating. I think you're so right. Boy, I, what a great uh, trifecta of uh, of analysis there. How about another thing? And that would be to somehow, I agree with all three of those points. It's brilliant. And uh, I would expect that from Inez Stepman. That's what we always get when we talk to you. What about, um, and I think one of your colleagues, I forget, was it Patrice, our friend Patrice at uh, IWF, wrote about um, apprenticeships and, and, and somehow involving um, I mean, we know that there's preceptorships and there's internships and something. What about some kind of uh, working out something to where a better, a more well-lubricated system of, of future employers sponsoring, um, you know, the college education? Is there anything that can be done there? Well, absolutely. I think the largest thing there actually loops back into the way that we've heavily subsidized the university track, right? So starting in the Great Society, basically, under LBJ, we've decided that that it's the best thing for the maximum number of people to go to college. Um, and we've heavily subsidized that track at the expense of other tracks of success, right? At the expense of things like inter- of, um, apprenticeships, you know, um, trade schools, all kinds mm-hmm. of actual skills, um, like skill building certification programs, right? We have heavily sure. basically said, this is the track to the good life. Here's a blank check to do it. Don't worry about it. Your fabulous job will pay it off after you know, after you graduate, that has obviously imploded, right? And and in some sense, this the student loan bailout right now is the first public acknowledgement um, from a lot of people, not only in the left but in the government, that this system has not worked. It has worked so badly that now we have to bail people out on the end of it, right? Um, <laughs> so I, I I think in answer to your question about whether we should you know create alternative tracks, yes. We can do that. I think we would worry about, you know, creating all the same problems that we did in, in the uh, college yeah. market 
in, in some of these apprenticeships, but um, the, the, fundamentally, it has become more difficult over the past 30 years to actually succeed without a college degree because it's so heavily subsidized, right? So what we've essentially told young people for the last couple decades has been, here's your choice. You can either go to college, take out what is increasingly six-figure debt to apply for the job that 15 years ago did not require a degree and probably has roughly the same salary in terms of at least, you know, adjusted for inflation as when it didn't require that debt. So now you have the same salary and a lot of debt to pay off, right? Um, Yeah. But the other side of that choice is, is getting equally more hard over time, right? So uh, the other side of that choice is you are going to compete for a shrinking number of jobs that don't require a college degree uh, because, because once you create essentially all these people with diplomas, employers then start tacking on because there's so many more applicants who are applying for the same jobs except they have bachelor's degrees, right? So then more jobs over time start to require bachelor's degrees because there's such a glut of people in the market essentially that are credentialed in this way. And so it has become harder for people who have a high school diploma to actually get their foot on the ladder to get, you know, that first chance to prove themselves in a job because there are so many people with college degrees walking around and applying for the same job. Um, so it, it's, it's made it harder for everyone. So I, I don't really take the tack, by the way, that, um, you know, this is a, a crisis of sort of personal responsibility. I don't think that most millennials and Gen Z who have these, these huge loans are personally irresponsible. They were basically doing what society and our government had told them was the, the right thing to do. Uh, the responsible thing to do, in fact, and that was to go to any university that would have you um, for any amount of money and not to really evaluate this because it won't be a problem later on. Because it wasn't a problem for people who graduated from college in the 80s, in the 90s, right? Um, it wasn't nearly as much of a problem. But the problem is the more that that quote-unquote free money became available, the cost of, of, of the amount of debt that people had to take on coincided with the plummeting of the value of the degree that they were earning, and it's left everybody in this, this big systemic mess. And, and most of all, the people who didn't make those decisions, who are now find themselves competing for a job that has nothing to do with what people study in college, right? right. But they're competing yeah. with people for the same job who do have that degree, and it's getting harder and harder to get that job. So this is, this is a treadmill, a credentialing treadmill that is not working for everyone. And, and the progenesis of it is is a bad decision by both government and society to say this is the only track for the good life is going to college yep you're right and then we get of course the graduate uh, the graduate degree race to try to overcome those who only have a bachelor degree and then it gets worse it's the same wow thing. great yeah. analysis that was a tour de force that really pretty much sums up why joe biden made a stupid move and uh, we're <laughs> we're hearing from even some purple state uh, you know some tightly uh, contested races uh, that uh, from some democrats they have some tension and heartburn about this too and as thank you so much for this i really appreciate this thank you so much for being with me have a great weekend thank you so much for having me all right, well, there she is, Inez Stepman from Independent Women's Forum, and a great analysis on uh, all that is wrong with this very bad and budget-busting plan, adding at least $500 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars to the, uh, the debt. Now, of course, I guess that doesn't really matter, does it? Because that so-called Inflation Reduction Act is going to, you know, cure inflation and avoid a recession it'll be just great there's no problem and there all those 87,000 IRS agents uh, they'll make it sure and collect enough money to pay for the uh, loan giveaway hey when we come back I want to talk about um, the back to school uh, move in Missouri and um, 
a, a small southwest Missouri town that is uh, the school board has taken some courageous move and want to get your opinion on that, as well as the student don't loan forgiveness issue. I think it's been a hot one around the water cooler and across the kitchen table. My number is 314-912-1019. That's 314-912-1019 here on News Talk STL 1019-941. Be right back. Welcome back to the program. Student loan forgiveness is going to be a hot, hot, hot item. Of course, Nancy Pelosi even has some ideas on that. Uh, she's not sure. That's cut two uh, from 24, 24-2, uh, Leah. Nancy Pelosi even has problems with it. Yeah, there's the economic issues. There's the other problems. But uh, no doubt, you know, Nancy even, barely do I agree disagree with Nancy Pelosi. Normally, I'm at odds with her. But uh, here's what she had to say about uh, about the proposed bailout for the student loan debt. People think that the president of the United States, is this more on the subject than you ever want to know? Will you let me know? People think that the president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. He can postpone. He can delay. But he does not have that power. That would that has to be an act of Congress. Okay, so you can tell that there's going to be some separation of powers uh, issues here, and uh, even some purple and tight, tightly contested races where Democrats are even coming out and saying, whoa, hang on here. So I think we haven't seen the end of this issue, and we'll continue to talk about it here on the show. I know on the station, and it'll be a, it'll be a hot topic into the midterms. Now, moving into uh, not so local, but Missouri uh, issues, something ran across my uh, news feed, and I don't know if you saw this, and uh, we're going to get uh, producer Leah to uh, to weigh in on this, but a small southwest school district in Missouri, Cassville Public Schools, so the southwest corner of the state, has announced a policy change that heads into the new school year. This is a letter sent to parents. They're about uh, 59 miles southwest of Springfield. Now, could that policy change be we're not going to do anything that approaches CRT? Could it be that maybe we're going to teach, teach reading, writing, and arithmetic, and we're going to prepare students for a successful life with a traditional education? Could it be that we're going to allow uh, Pledge of the Allegiance and, if you want, a, a morning prayer in the schools? No, no, no. Leah, do you know what the Cassville schools are going to do this year? I don't. You heard? Nope. They're going to allow parents to opt in to having students paddled. Yes, a light tap on the butt what? will be an option for discipline. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, most of the criticism is coming from outside Cassville, uh, the superintendent told the Springfield News Leader. Uh, <laughs> in his town, there's been applause, he said. <laughs> Quote, we've had people actually thank us for it. Surprisingly, those on social media would be probably be appalled to hear us say these things. But the majority of people I've run into have been supportive. <laughs> wow. I'm surprised they allow that. Well, most states have banned corporal punishment, but apparently there are uh, 19 of them, including Missouri, that, that haven't. Huh. So now using physical force on a child, inflicting pain to correct their behavior can have unintended consequences, experts say. This is according to the Miami Herald. Even spanking by a parent, which a third of U.S. parents reported doing, may cause issues with mental and emotional development. <laughs> <laughs> 
I got, I got spanked. I don't know. You think I'm emotionally and mentally uh, challenged here? I mean, what do you think, <laughs> Leah? Don't answer that question. No. Don't answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> did you get spanked? Uh, yeah, I did. Okay. Well, look at you. You're look at this. You're like a world class weightlifter, and you're a producer <laughs> on a big uh, radio station. And look at look at you. You're doing just fine. Do you feel like you're emotionally and uh, tarnished, and that the trauma will may you may never be able to escape it? <laughs> no. <laughs> No. Well, that, here's the test of that, whether you've had trauma from the spanking. You know those little paddle balls where you, the ball is stapled on a, with a long rubber band? To the yes. Ball? Okay. When you see those in the five and dime store, do you start breaking out in a sweat and have to leave the <laughs> store immediately with an anxiety attack and a panic? Definitely no? not. Okay. Well, then I guess uh, I guess maybe the spanking didn't have a corrupting uh, influence on you. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> you know what, whether or not, as I tweeted out earlier in the in the week, and if you guys, if you want to stay in touch with me on Twitter, it's um, at Randy Tolbert, MD. I, I tweeted out, you know what, whether you like the policy or whether you don't, you have to admire the courage of not only this school board, but the, the superintendent who's going to have to you know, figure out how to how to administer this. And, um, I, you know, it's a bold step. But, you know, that's, I guess, the perhaps it's a little gem of, of, of local control of the schools and something that we ought to, we ought to expand to include curricula. I'd like to see that happen there too. So I don't know. They've, uh, they've, uh, they've asked for more comment and haven't gotten any, but uh, <laughs> he said, he said, this is the superintendent. My plan when I came to Castro wasn't to be known as the guy who brought corporal punishment. I didn't want to be my legacy and I still don't, but it's something that has happened on my watch and I'm okay with it. He said, so there you go. But now remember, this is not the school's choice uh, in each individual case. This is the uh, the parents will be, uh, you know, it will be an opt-in situation. So, I, I just I just thought that was that was interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now in another in another interesting story, um, if I can find this, where is it? Here, here we go. I think this is it. Yeah. So remember all of the problem we had with. Um, with Australia and how, you know, a guy would walk out of his door to get his mail and the police would have him on the ground and handcuffed and beaten it, you know, during the lockdowns. Remember, Australia was just over the top with their, with their management of that whole issue and, and really the tyranny that was upon those, those folks. Well, and again, not that everything that starts in Australia will come here, but I think it's a, it's a sign of the times. Now, Leah, you never go to a nightclub, do you? You've never gone to a nightclub. You know everything. Are you there, Leah? Oh, uh, uh, suffice it to say that a Sydney nightclub has uh, a Sydney nightclub has. Oh, she's getting the phone. There she is. She's getting the phone. A Sydney nightclub, ladies and gentlemen, has. <laughs> this is crazy. They have declared that they are going to be a safe space, uh, and that they're for people who don't want to be harassed by those who stare, and uh, and they're there for the sole purpose <laughs> for their night out is to meet someone to pick up. So Club 77 in Sydney said managers will call the cops <laughs> if clubbers stare at others without getting their consent. So if you go to the club and you're hanging out and you know how that some many of you out there, I'll bet, I'll bet that the woman that you are with right now are women, the guys you are with right now. It all started with that look across the room. It all started with that look across the conference table at one. It all started, you know what I mean? That, that's, that's the way it goes. And now if you do that, 
in Club 77 in Sydney, Australia, the bouncers will come and they're liable to uh, to throw you out. Not only that, they say that in some cases they will call the police. <laughs> the fresh policy states that Club 77 is not a place to come if your sole purpose is to pick up. If you do come in and are approaching multiple people or giving unwanted attention to someone, you are going to attract the attention of our security who have been instructed to stop this kind of behavior. <laughs> I don't know. I, I got to blink and make sure I'm awake. I know it's Saturday morning. Maybe I'm still sleeping in, but uh, this is unbelievable. Hey, well, let's go to Gene, who I'm sure never gawked at anyone when in his single days, never stared at anyone longingly across the nightclub floor. Right, Gene? You never did any of that when you were a kid. Okay, I guess my butt's going to get bounced across the floor for about three <laughs> hours if I ever go down to Australia, <laughs> which with that and their gun situation everything, I think I'll yeah. stay in the Northern Hemisphere. I agree with you. What's on your mind? Um, I just caught the tail end of the uh, conversation you had with the lady a moment ago, so I don't have to forgive me for that. Um, in the early 2000s, I, being an unemployed business professional at the time, was working with St. Patrick's Center and a group of business professionals that got together for support and try to help networking and find jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Part of what I did was brought in instrumental and in bringing in a panel of a bunch of HR people from some of the top companies in St. Louis. And I asked them at the time, I basically had the equivalent of an associate's degree and was doing perfectly fine until our industry collapsed. I asked them, why is it that you guys are requiring bachelor's and master's degrees for jobs that 10, 15 years ago you need, needed an associate's degree or nothing, just performance on the job? Every one of them without fail answered, it makes the funnel tighter. It just limits the number of people that we have to deal with. And, and it also the increases the demand for those degrees, and it increases the, the because college that's exactly and right. Prosper, then and, they start handing out degrees. Yep. Yep. And followed uh, by the uh, federal government being the only one in the student loan business. I took out a federally insured student loan when I went to school in 70. Uh, three, I paid mine off, etc. But all that does is the colleges, I think, use that. Okay, well, there's this income stream. We're going to jack stuff up and do whatever we want. Yep. A lady yep. that I went to high school with. We only have a minute, Jay. Okay, she she went to uh, school as a physical therapist. You need a master's degree to do that job now for the exact same thing that she did now. And I asked about that, and they said, oh, well, they need to be able to have a master's degree to uh, help train and manage other people. That's just BS. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, look, they've, they've inflated the degree, the value of the degree to where it has very little value anymore. And they've That's also true. created more demand, which is going to create price inflation for those getting those. And, Great and, analysis, Gene. Thank you, man. I got to run. I appreciate you. Though. Sure. Thanks for listening. And, Thanks for calling. Okay. 
All right, when we come back, we're going to talk about a little postmortem on what is the winding down of Dr. Fauci's tenure as our leading public health official, along with some analysis on the FDA and the CDC with Rick Maida, former FDA official and health policy professor. Be right back on The Tolbert Show. 